It is such an honor and a privilege to have recorded my very first co-hosted podcast with none other than Joanna Sieber. Together, Joanna and I interviewed none other than the esteemed Dr. Winnie Dunn. She is a world-renowned occupational therapist and expert in the sensory experience, researcher, and author of the book, Living Sensationally. She is the author of The Sensory Profile Measure. I am so excited for you to hear our interview with her today. She is so incredibly inspiring. Before we do that, I just want to share a little bit about Dr. Joanna Sieber, who joins me in our interview today. Joanna got her Master of Science in OT at UIC in 2009 and returned in 2019 to earn her Doctorate of Occupational Therapy degree. Joanna has extensive clinical experience in pediatric occupational therapy, and her primary areas of interest are family-centered care, self-care skills, sexual health, self-advocacy, and perinatal wellness. She is deeply rooted in the model of human occupation and the intentional relationship model, each born from her alma mater. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation today. New and seasoned OTs are finding their calling in pelvic health. After all, what's more ADL than sex, peeing, and poop? But here's the question. What does it take to become a successful, fulfilled, and thriving OT in pelvic health? How do you go from beginner to seasoned and everything in between? Those are the questions, and this podcast will give you the answers. We are inspired OTs. We are out-of-the-box OTs. We are pelvic health OTs. I'm your host, Lindsay Vestal, and welcome to the OTs in Pelvic Health podcast. Joanna, I am really honored to have recorded a podcast with you uh, where we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Winnie Dunn. You were the first person that I've ever co-hosted a podcast with. And I got to tell you, it was so much fun. (laughs) It was. Thank you for for coming to me with this incredible idea of interviewing Dr. Dunn on the OTs for Pelvic Health podcast. And before we play the interview, I'd love to bring our listeners in a little bit into the conversation can you tell me why you came to me with this idea? Why Why did you want us to interview Dr. Winnie Dunn? I feel like Dr. Winnie Dunn is so inspiring. She's a true OT hero of mine. I really admire her, her truly holistic view of sensory processing, the way she embraces the beauty of difference in all people, and the way she really invites us to the core of our profession, the heart really of who we are as OTs. And I think she has such an important voice of that clarity in the conversation about sensory processing and sensory integration that can sometimes get a little bit muddled or where we may get a little bit lost in terminology and feel unsure of exactly what it is that we are attempting or offering to our clients. And in terms of that, you know, I'd really love to understand a little bit better this idea of I hear sensory integration, I hear the term sensory processing. And in in my brain, I'm going to be really, really transparent with you, Joanna. I'm not sure that I completely understand the differences between the two. And 
I guess my question to you is, do we need to understand the differences? Are we being picky with semantics in trying to understand the difference between these two very important concepts within our profession? Yeah, I love this question. And nobody, myself included, nobody likes an argument about semantics. Of course, we do not want to get lost in in that type of a, a dialogue. But what matters so much in this difference and this distinction between whether we are offering AIRS SI integration or whether we are offering um, a strength-based approach to sensory processing, which is more in line with Dunn's model of sensory processing, the key there really is the client's understanding of what it is that we're promising and even what it is that we believe we're setting out to do. So our goal, our vision, and when we're talking about remediation, so integration, and even in that that terminology, we hear the idea that there would be an endpoint of integration happening, right? I'm offering you integration as a goal. You will ultimately experience integration. What does that mean for the person? Um, If we are in an SI clinic with specialized equipment and we have specialized training in AIRS SI, Absolutely. That may be our our intention. It may be our goal and we may accomplish that. But that is in a really specific scenario. And many of the OTs working in public health are not in that specific setting. They are not in the space where that's something they can offer. And it may not even be something they think the client needs. It may not be appropriate to offer. So, What is it that we're offering if we are not in this AIRS SI clinic, if we are not offering remediation? Let's say we have a home-based practice and we're seeing a perinatal client and we're supporting uh, the way that that client develops new habits and routines and managing um, a sense of being overwhelmed maybe by the auditory stimuli or the tactile stimuli of new motherhood or the lack of what was previously really regulating sensory input, like heavy probe from a run. And we're off of that um, heavy exercise for a number of weeks while we're in this more isolated, auditory heavy um, input experience. Um, How do we support that person to understand what's happening at a nervous system level, at the level of the brain, when it comes to sensory processing, and really to offer themselves grace and self-care? That's different from changing the brain. Or let's say we're in a school-based setting and we're working with a a child who's navigating, this has been a really common one for me, um, a sense of discomfort in the shared bathroom where there's unpredictable loud flushing or really bright fluorescent lights or a really cold toilet seat. And we're trying to figure out how to solve for these environmental triggers at a sensory level that are creating avoidance of the bathroom, promoting withholding, leading to constipation, maybe having then sequential accidents, um, and escalating what's happening in the nervous system. How do we care for that person and create insight, not just for the team, but for the individual to understand, is it that I don't want to go to the bathroom? Or is it that these sensory aspects of the bathroom experience are so noxious to me? that I need to find a way to care for myself. And that is not, again, it's not changing the brain. It's not changing the nervous system. It really is a strength-based approach. How do we look to see 
how we can empower you to be successful, manipulating or shifting some of those sensory variables, but not remediating your internal sensory integration. And what matters really to me to come back to that promise to the client is um, kind of the contract that we enter into with any of our any of our clients that is that that um, trust building exercise of um, setting a goal and delivering it. Right. We we decide what it is that we offer um, together, hopefully in collaboration, and then we deliver and we have a sense of trust that we build. Um, that we held to our word and and what we were going to do together. So the semantics don't matter, but the promise matters. And it also matters in how we feel about ourselves, right? Am Am I selling something I believe I can deliver? Or am I kind of feeling unsure about these words I'm mixing? And we don't have a lot of clarity in, um, in our dialogue between OT and client and understanding what it is that we're tackling and how. Oh, Joanna, that was that was so clear and so beautifully articulated. I really loved how you talked about the postpartum person and the child and how the sensory system and the ability to regulate nervous system comfort and ease is really at the core of our work as pelvic floor therapists, regardless of the age that we are serving. And so thank you for illustrating that. I can, I can, I immediately pictured that postpartum person. I've had that person as a client. I immediately pictured that child. Actually, my daughter had those experiences in the bathroom with the loud flushing and the fluorescent lights. And I, I think we all can relate to that. So thank you for that incredibly clear and amazing depiction. I have one last question for you, which is if you were to think about the pelvic floor therapist, would you give us a quick example of what a SI or sensory integration intervention would look like versus a sensory processing integration? Um, and maybe we can use a, a postpartum client if you feel comfortable with that or, or a pediatric client um, to, ex- to illustrate the difference between the two. It's a good question and a good challenge. I think if I had to guess or bet, most of us are actually using a strength-based approach to sensory processes. We are pulling in elements of our understanding of sensory processing to support our interventions. And we might be sharing little bits, even sprinkled throughout our intervention. It could be that you're, you're utilizing a biomechanical approach or a biopsychosocial approach and then you notice there's an element that includes a sensory as part of the sensory system. And you bring in that knowledge, but it's really more a sprinkling or peppering. And that is not SSI. That would be, we are utilizing this knowledge to strengthen how both we view the client and how they understand themselves. And we might be utilizing that knowledge to shift the environment so that it is more comforting, so that it is, and even different from comforting, it might be so that it's more alerting or energizing. We might be working with a client uh, postpartum who's navigating depression. And um, part of that uh, postpartum depression and often the accompanying anxiety may be isolation in the home. And so the lack of fresh air, um, coolness to the face, a briskness to movement that could happen with a a walk outside. Um, That's really a sensory experience. 
that we might recommend. And just telling the person to walk for the aspect of exercise is an incomplete intervention, right? But what we offer as holistic practitioners is that sensory knowledge as well. So when we invite the client to view that walk in light of self-care at a sensory level, we invite them to see sometimes we can view exercise like something we make ourselves do. And from a state of um, depression, postpartum, that's hard, right? To add to the list of things that we're failing to do or didn't do right. And we don't want to do that. But what if we could shift the lens to be, how can we care for ourselves? How can you show yourself love in this moment, in this hour? And seeing the walk, not just as physical exercise and all the emotional weight that can go with exercise goals, but offering a space for your body to experience alerting, stimulating in a positive way, sensory stimuli, that can be a different thing entirely and can be a radical shift, right? In noticing, look what's happening to my brain in the sunlight, in the cool air, with movement, with proprioception, and it invites us to see ourselves really as a dynamic system. The, the, the depression isn't happening to us, but our brain is responding to all of these things. And in my experience with clients, people are really curious about themselves, right? They want to know what's happening inside of my brain, what's happening such that this isn't just a passive, helpless experience for me. How can I increase my understanding um, and be empowered with tools? So we make sensory understanding a tool. And I think that that is so beautiful when it's a shift away from remediation, especially. I've never really connected with remediation. I have not worked primarily in injury rehabilitation, but I work mostly with people with intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities. I've um, dabbled more in perinatal clients since becoming a mom myself. And I love the OT angle that is not about fixing and is about connecting, is about understanding, is about um, really seeing what do we mean by self-care at a sensory level. And that is complex, but it's also opening a whole lens to view the world in what are all of the sensory offerings that are happening to me at this moment? And how can I make shifts in those to change the way my brain is functioning and my body feels? And then my emotional experience is impacted. Did you know that the third annual OTs in Public Health Summit comes with 1.6 AOTA-approved CEUs? Now, while the in-person event has sold out, you can still purchase the recordings for $100 off using the link that's in the show notes. We have a professional videography team coming in to capture every single moment of the summit. So it's the next best thing to being there. Pick up your $100 off tickets with 1.6 AOTA approved CEUs by going to the link in the show notes. Joanna, thank you so much for taking the time to, to, not only help us frame the conversation that our listeners are about to hear, but thank you for bringing this exceptional idea. It was it was an incredible privilege to be able to spend that time with Dr. Dunn uh, and just to be able to further understand how 
you know, this classically pediatric approach, stuff that we, you know, had in our textbooks in OT school, how it really can find its way and, and thread it throughout all occupational therapy specialties, pelvic health included. So it was such a privilege to share this conversation with you. And I'm really excited about sharing our conversation with Dr. Dunn with our listeners. Thank you so much, Lindsay. That was like a once in a lifetime experience to get to collaborate with you to speak with her. Fantastic. All right, let's queue up the interview. Welcome, Winnie, to the OTs in Public Health podcast. I am joined by my colleague and friend, Joanna Sieber, and we are co-hosting together today, which we are so excited about. We're honored that you're here. Thank you for, for taking some time to chat with us about your, your work and your just the incredible legacy that you've given us as professionals. Well... You're welcome. <laughs> I've had a long time to do it. So there you go. I love it. So I'm just going to, we're going to get right into the conversation because we're so excited to have you. And I'd love to just kind of start off with asking you, Winnie, why do you describe your model as a strengths-based approach to sensory processing? Um, you know, that, that idea came to me a long time ago when um, I did my first studies uh, with uh, kids with autism, you know, because that was an obvious group that had differences in the way they process sensory input. And um, I would give a talk and people would come up to me and they'd say, my daughter does that. My husband does that, you know, and it just dawned on me that, you know, at, when we do research, we always try to pick a vulnerable group because that it makes it easy to see phenomena. Um, and so, one of the things I think is so great is that all these people that have conditions that we have served historically, um, they're showing us the way by having a more intense version of sensitivity, by having a more intense version of uh, seeking, whatever it is, they show us the sort of bigger picture of that, that pat, that sensory pattern. And in doing that, um, it informs all the rest of us that don't have a particular condition or one that our culture has decided to diagnose. Um, we learn about ourselves, you know? And so it, it occurred to me that um, it's really disrespectful to act like only people with conditions have uh, particular sensory patterns when in fact it is part of who each of us is, you know, it's our way of, interfacing with the world. It's our way of knowing how to navigate. Um, uh, so I call it strength-based because I want us to think about all the people. You know, I think in the next generation of OT, we have to stop acting like people have a ticket to get in. <laughs> you know, like they have to have, you know, particular referrals or they have to have, you know, like a valuable service people will pay for, you know? So, so strength-based to me means all the people, you know, it means that we, we don't look at a person's sensory pattern as something wrong with them. We look at it as part of who they are. And when we understand who they are better, when families understand who their children are, when spouses understand each other, we can be more respectful to each other's way of being, you know, without any judgment. You know, um, I had a, I had a, a uh, woman say to me, once she understood her husband was an avoider, she did not, she felt like she was taking care of him when she let him go in the back room and be alone when he got home from work. And prior to that, she thought she was being neglected. And 
subsequent to understanding that about herself and her husband, she felt um, really empowered that she was caring for him by giving him 30 minutes to be by himself. You know, that's what sensory processing is about. It's about our humanity. It's not about a deficit or um, something that we have to fix. In fact, you know, there's studies that um, adults with autism have the same patterns they had when they were children, you know, many of whom got therapy and special ed and every other thing. And so, you know, I think it's uh, something we can learn from like personality psychology and temperament psychology that the, the way it shows up when you're 30 is different than the way it shows up when you're eight. But those underlying characteristics are always there. You know, a seeker is going to try food without even considering whether it's icky or not. <laughs> they're going to put it in their mouth and then they're going to go, oh, um, a sensor is going to ask 10 questions. You know, is it spicy? Did you, you know, is it soggy on the inside? You know, they might still eat it, but their approach to the problem of deciding to eat it um, is very different. And so I think that we have to, if we think bigger about OT, we have to consider how every piece of knowledge we have affects all the people. The grocery store, the restaurant, the the um, the park, every place. And um, so, strength based to me means that we see ourselves as experts on living, not experts on disability. Ask a follow up on that, Winnie. Um, speaking of a, a ticket to get in, I wonder what you think about the value of a diagnosis like sensory processing disorder belonging in the DSM. I I don't think it does. All the people that say that know that that's what I think. I I just think we need, in a postmodern way of thinking, we have to quit labeling everyone because they have something that's different than we have. Um, Pretty much, um, you know, all all the kids that I've served, you know, they have some other diagnosis too. I think we need to look at sensory processing as a tool to help us understand um, how that person um, can be the most successful in their everyday life. And in knowing that we make families feel competent, you know, you know, a mom feels more competent if she understands that her baby's crying for a reason, you know, because the, the onesie is uncomfortable or, you know, like it gives a concrete thing that they can do right away. You know, it gives, um, friends and family, um, a way to talk differently. You know, you can say, well, you know, Tom's in the other room for a minute, you know, he, he, he just needs to gather himself. He'll be back, you know, instead of what's the matter with Tom, doesn't he like us? You know, all those layers of judgment we put on people, um, in my best world, sensory processing would be just like saying somebody has brown eyes or, you know, they're so, so, you know, so many inches tall or, they're shy, you know, just their characteristics without having this laden meaning about them that is making people feel less than, you know, sensory processing knowledge can help people feel more than. I know why my child runs when we get to the park. I know why my child is reticent to get into the sandbox. I know why my husband, you know, is so vociferous all the time. You know, it's not a judgment anymore. My husband um, mostly is a bystander and he throws it back at me many times in a, in a month. You know, you know, you know, I, you know, I'm a bystander. Like when he does something bystander-ish, like leave 
his shoes everywhere, you know, um, but that's the way it should be. You know, we should be teasing each other about it in a loving way. We should be pointing out, oh, you know, yeah, of course you did that. You're a seeker. Um, so I just feel like we can do better than we've been doing. Well, we, and it, it's also about our personal identity as an OT. You know, um, you know that you have knowledge that anyone could benefit from. You know, it doesn't. it doesn't have to be this narrow band that we've created in healthcare and education. Mm-hmm. Lindsay and I have, have chatted about the great value of, of sharing sensory processing, self-compassion with perinatal mm-hmm. clients and new moms, even the, the flip side of why is the baby crying? Why does the sound of the baby crying make mom feel like a terrible person who, who has to get away? <laughs> if they know that, you know, Oh, I have the TV on and the radio on and they turn it off. They feel, they feel competent, you know, like that very, very exact thing can be turned to, Oh yeah. He's sensitive to sound. You know, I need to turn it down or, Oh yeah. He only likes me to hold him for a minute and then he's good. You know, like just that little tweak can make a mom feel so much better. So fast. Absolutely. Um, we've also shared with you that pelvic health OTs are working with both pediatric and adult clients, incorporating a lot of the concepts from your work. We wonder what is one thing you wish every practicing OT knew about the sensory system across the lifespan? Um, I wish everybody knew that it was part of who they are and not something to mess with in a negative way. I wish people said, well, let's get a baseline, um, you know, which sensory systems, you know, help you in this situation, which ones help you in this situation, instead of always seeing like intense sensory experiences as negative, to say, gosh, you hear every sound, how can we tap into that? You know, I, um, I wrote a chapter uh, with some colleagues, um, I think it's in, I think it's in Willard and Spackman, and we had a self-advocate as one of our our um, uh, authors. And he talks about this friend of his that has, is a sound technician now um, because of his highly sensitive auditory system. And, you know, that's what I love. I love that because that's what happens. You know, people become fabric designers because of their high sensitivity to tactile experiences. You know, people become, um, acrobats because of their, you know, their sensation of vestibular and proprioceptive input and how they can use it to their advantage. Um, I think all of us have successful lives if we understand that about ourselves and each other. Your self-compassion, Joanna, is such a great word to use, especially with that population of new mothers. They, our culture gives them so many reasons to feel like they're doing it wrong. And I think we have a chance to show them how they're doing it right. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love thinking about it as a superpower, as yes. something that we can lean into. And, and actually, it's it's our sense of creative self. And it's something that we feel actually really good at doing because it is part of who we are. You know, um, and I would, you know, I used to I used to talk about it as an uber strength, you know, um, even the things that we would think are bad become really 
uber strengths, don't they? They become superpowers because we have to pay more attention to them. We have to be more mindful about them. We have to understand all of their qualities because we notice them all, you know? So instead of like trying to make it quieter all the time, you know, if the person's really drawn to sound music, for example, then we, we find what kind of music, like that's where OTs are so good at it. We're so good at, at, activity analysis and breaking things down. Like it might not be that we have to have silence. It might be that there's certain sounds that are okay and other, other sounds that aren't. And that's to me where OTs have a superpower. We understand how to dial it up and dial it down, you know, without like going all or none all the time. And, and I don't think people, other people on the team think about that part as much as we do. Minnie, your work in creating the sensory profile is such an incredible gift to the profession. And so many pelvic health occupational therapists utilize this tool. We're so curious, how has the sensory profile evolved since its inception? And what impact do you hope it will have on the field of occupational therapy? Wow. Um, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the the way it started, um, I I'd I had my first grant from American Occupational Therapy Foundation. It was for $8,000. And it was to look at the, um, the use of consultation as a strategy uh, for delivering services. Now, this was back in the 80s when uh, the idea that we wouldn't be touching only the children in a segregated place was unheard of, you know, so it was, you know, controversial. But in order to show the validation of that we were picking kids that had something that was different than their peers. Um, We gathered the, the eight therapists that were the data collectors. We gathered children from their neighborhoods where the schools were, where they worked. Uh, They, they each, uh, we gathered all the sensory questions that people were asking in hospitals and clinics and um, everywhere we could find. There were a few articles that had some items, you know, that people would ask, but we gathered them all up. And then over the summer before the school year started, they gave them, you know, to a three-year-old, a four-year-old up to 10 in each of their communities. And so we used, and I analyzed it and came up with a mean and standard deviation while they were collecting the intervention data. And so while they were doing all that, I decided I would publish the 64 kids that were in that study to, to sort of point out that, eight-year-olds do this and six-year-olds do this uh, to, to let people know. Cause at that point, OTs only saw kids mostly in segregated places. And so they start thinking that eight-year-olds can't hop on one foot or that they can't do this or that, you know, cause they never see like the actual everyday eight-year-old. And um, when I published that paper, just to show people we're on the right track, you know, we're asking good questions. I like, like five therapists that I never met before uh, wrote, or called or whatever, uh, to say, oh, this is really helpful. If you do more stuff about this, let me know. I'll help you collect data. So that was this humble beginning where my job was to do an intervention study, but in order to show that we picked kids that had differences, we collected all this stuff. And that's what became the sensory profile. I mean, that collection of items became the sensory profile. And as I told you earlier, you know, we started out as everyone does testing kids that had differences, ADHD and autism and um, intellectual disabilities. And um, so we have, there's a lot of studies out there now. There's probably about a hundred that 
say, put any diagnosis in is different than the normal, the typical population. There's like, like we're, I think we should be done with that. We know there's differences. And so over the years, you know, of course, then people said that we didn't have one for adolescents. We didn't have one for adults. We didn't have one for babies. We didn't have one for toddlers. So, you know, expanding um, the age range so that it's available across the age range um, was a big thing too. But I think now, um, I think one of the funniest things to me was when I did, had the 1,000, 1,100 kids on um, the original sensory profile, I didn't understand the things that today we talk about seeking, avoiding, sensitivity, and registration. And um, so I, um, I had to like think for weeks and weeks when I did a factor analysis about why I thought it would be like the auditory things would fall together, the visual things would fall together, um, but they don't. Um, not that those aren't important, but the brain is interested in how the information gets processed, not what the information is. And so that deep thinking that I had to do because the findings weren't what I expected um, is what led to us understanding seeking and avoiding and sensitivity and registration. And uh, now it's like everyday language when we talk about stuff. And it was unclear to me even what it was back then. So one of the things, you know, I want people to hear is that we have to be willing if disparate information comes along to think deeply about why that information is happening. You know, we can't dismiss a mother that says something that doesn't match all the other mothers we've met with. You know, we can't dismiss um, something that we don't understand. We have to stop and say, wow, that is really interesting. You know, we have to continue to be curious. So you know, like when I did the school companion, I was testing teacher, I you know I was asking teachers, well, duh, teachers don't think the way uh, parents do. <laughs> you know, they have, they have a whole body of knowledge they're using. So when the factor analysis didn't show up with those four patterns in the same way, I had to think about like, what's the teachers only care about children learning. So everything they say is about whether the kids can pay attention, whether they're on task, you know, all those education things. So now we're here and uh, we're working on an interoception scale because that's become popular um, in the mental health world. Um, and I think it's going to be really helpful for those of you in pelvic health because that's a huge deal with um, toileting and, and um, your period and all those kinds of things, you know, that internal sensation of what's happening. But I think what, what, where we are today is that we're very clear that it's about everyone. It's, it's not, a, it's not, um, those tests aren't just for people that are in clinics and places where something vulnerable is happening to someone. They're for everybody. And I'm really, I'm really proud of that. I, I don't, I've gotten criticized for it not being kind of clinical. It's just like everyday words that families would say. Um, but I, I'm proud of that because I think it, it exposes everyone to how smart OTs are. Um, you know, one of my main reasons at the beginning was like when uh, Pearson Publishing, which has been other other companies, you know, it gives the, the therapist credibility, you know, that the psychologist at your table is like, oh, yeah, I know. I know Pearson. I know the psychological corporation. This must be it must be um, an important thing. 
um, I, you know, early on that was really, that really mattered. And now we're just part of everything. In fact, you know, the, the cool thing for me is that people from other disciplines are coming to get our information. They're using it because just like we've used psychologist information and business information and developmental information from other disciplines, we are mature enough as a discipline now that people are using our information to, to support their ideas. And I think that's how mature disciplines evolve. Uh, the funniest thing that happened to me lately related to this question is they built a brand new airport at, in Kansas City and AOTA was here like three weeks after it opened, like literally three weeks after it opened. And two weeks before, you know, um, AOTA came, I, I was on a trip. I was going somewhere with my husband and we walk in the building and there's this huge sign on the wall with a a door and you can see it's dark inside and it says um, sense it's at sensory room on the wall. And I walked in to make sure it wasn't like a, like an icky snoozling room, you know, where no one cares what anyone's uh, particular patterns are, but you know, it was a place for people to get away. And here's this brand new building. I live in the city where it was built. I don't know any of the architects. I don't know any of the designers. I don't know anyone that made the decision. But somehow all this knowledge that you and I have worked on all these years is in the ethos of our culture. You know, they knew that it was smart to include that in their public place. You know, like, so when you say, what's the evolution? That's how knowledge is best used is at that population level where there's no judgment if they're just they just have a room in there if you need to get away you can go there there's there's no you know people with autism come here you know there's none of that you know and and so anybody anybody that needs to have a breath can go in that room and get away from the bustle and i think i think a lot of the work that ot did led to that becoming part of the everyday conversations that people have when they build public structures, just like ADA helped us understand that curb cuts and providing space for people to sit and all that was important. And now it's just our ordinary. So that room being there in my city um, was kind of a marker event <laughs> that it's not about, it's not about me. It's not about, us, it's about the fact that OTs worked hard to make sure people saw this was important. And now people say, yes, it is by putting it in a public place. That's a long answer to a short question. No, but jumping on that, I wonder if you feel any need to protect that domain of sensory processing for us. And no. if you receive any threat of encroachment from other professionals who are interested you know Joanna, I, I don't, I don't think like that. I, um, you know, when, once you create knowledge and you put it like in journals and the, the place, you know, the appropriate places we put things, once you do that, you really don't have any control over it. And, you know, I would say to you, there's some OTs using this knowledge inappropriately, just like there are people in other disciplines using it inappropriately. And I have no control over that. You know, I can say that's not how I would do it. You know, some of my colleagues would say, I know the person that created that and that's not what she would do. <laughs> like, but that's as far as you can go. You know, you have to, 
knowledge evolves in its own rhythm and we ride the stream of that, but we're not in charge of it. You know, we're not creating the, the flow or we're participating in the flow. And, um, you know, I, I don't like when people use information in, inappropriately, you know, when people say things about the brain that, you know, they might be shallowly true, but not actually true, you know, um, to support their ideas. But we, you know, we don't have any control over that. We, all we can do is put out the best information we can. Um, one of the reasons I wrote that public book, Living Sensationally, was to create a way for people to see that it's about everyone. You know, that was my positive way of contributing that, that idea is that this isn't about disability. It isn't about fixing. It's about being. And um, so, you know, that's an example of what I would do about it is make sure people have accurate information. Like when I review journal articles, I, I'll point that out to the authors, you know, have you considered you have your ideas could have a bigger impact if you talked about them like this, you know, I think that there's always going to be bad actors, you know, and we just have to be better than them. You know, we just have to be better. And um, I think mostly people know that the sensory knowledge comes from OT because they go to so many OT resources to get it. Um, so I think that's really good. Sometimes that's not true, but I think that's true in this case. Do you guys have a different experience than that? I know there's a, a really common kind of line of discourse around how do we protect our domain? How do we ensure that we aren't lost kind of a, um, to PT or to speech? And particularly, this is one area that is unique to us. And are we doing what we can to ensure it sounds possessive in, in a way, but but you uh, you had a great role in creating so much of this content. Is it important then for us as OTs in that um, in that lineage to be guardians of it or stewards of it? Well, I think the way you are good stewards is by being excellent, you know, by by being compelling, by being indispensable. You know, you know, that that's why, for example, I'm sure you get criticisms in public health about being more like PT. And so it, it just it, to me, the call is to be more about life and participation and um, satisfaction and quality. That's what attracts people. You know, we have, you know, we have to live by attraction. And, and I think that for a long time, OT, um, during my formative years, um, as a collective, we're afraid, you know, we were afraid not to get on the biomechanical train with rehab and, um, and uh, musculoskeletal things, you know, we were afraid to get on the train of um, independent living. You know, we had a chance in the seventies to, to get, to get on that path. And we were just too young and afraid to do it, you know, but that is a way more consistent philosophy to what we say OT is. And I think that the way that we, um, we rise up by being so good at it that people wouldn't consider any other options, you know? And I think we're, you know, I think we're mature enough to do that now. Um, you know, we have to look at the developmental trajectory of any discipline and give ourselves some grace on that. But I think that we, we just have to be so, you know, like, I really, you know, like there's nothing worse than saying I need to, I need to figure out 
how to help my child go potty and they keep talking about exercises you know like to a family that doesn't make sense you know we in our best selves are talking about going potty you know like we're right on it we don't drift we're proximal to the thing they say they need and want and the more we do that the more indispensable we become that to me that's how we do it not by making restrictions or you know if somebody if somebody on your team uses the knowledge of an incorrect way you know we have a chance to help them do it better you know all the years i worked in public education I never had a teacher say to me, oh, thanks, I've got everything I need from you. I don't need you anymore. Like, they're like, they got to the point where they would think I could help them with everything, things that I didn't know anything about, you know, because they they saw that I was resourceful and that I was uh, willing to listen. And I, I used words they used and I, I talked about the exact thing they, you know, like seat work or whatever it was. We talked about that. And I embellished it with what I knew. So I never had anybody say, okay, <laughs> I think I have everything I need from you. Thanks. And I think that's, you know, that's what being indispensable is. You know, when the budget cuts come, I want the teachers to say, don't get rid of the OT. You know, that's what makes us uh, strong and powerful, not by being you know, protected and guarded. And you guys are embarking on a, on a new area. It's the same, you know. I'm sure. I'm sure there's um, some of those same trials for you. Uh, but you have to ask yourself, like, what makes me look indispensable? What makes me so good at this that a, a person will make a referral and tell their friends or whatever, you know, whatever the paths of communication are, because you did something for them that they didn't think they got from anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that is incredibly important. I love, I love that Winnie. How, how do you envision the future of sensory processing research and its implications for OT? I want, I want, um, I want OTs to be coaching with grocery store owners about how to organize the products to be in support of different patterns of sensory processing. Like, you know, if, if, if the grocery store overwhelms you, here's a path you can take, you know, um, here's the, here's a little section of the store with smaller numbers of items. If you need to have a, a miniature store experience here, you know, here's, um, here's a path you could use if you want more stimulation, you know, we spritz the vegetables. So get over there. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, I'm being silly, but I'm really not. You know, I, I want us to be thinking about our impact at a big level, you know, like you, in, I, I, I've been thinking about public health because we knew, I knew I was going to talk to you guys, but like, what would be the biggest way you can have an impact on public health? You know, it would be that every, every OBGYN makes a pre-birth referral um, so that you can prepare the, the mother for you know, if this happens, you know, the, they don't know what's going to happen, but you can pre, you know, preset all of that. We did a project where we went in before, um, I think it was, um, I think it was breast cancer treatment. Um, we went in and did a home visit with the family, with the, the women uh, beforehand. And, you know, they were doing fine. You know, their lives were fine. You know, they were, just, they were nervous about having surgery, all that. But, um, 
But because we did that, they knew to ask for help quicker, you know? So, so to me, that's a, a thing that we should be doing is, is moving ourselves towards, you might, you might have, you might notice different sensations and here are some ways, you know, that you can notice those things. And here are some ways that, you know, that we can help you if that happens. So they don't get afraid, you know, fear makes everything so much bigger. You know, we have to, we have to think about how we can use our knowledge um, in service to mindfulness, you know, cause that, that's what sensory processing is. It's mindfulness, you know, like if you know, something's coming, you know, all the literature on pain, if people know, how to characterize their pain experience, it it's different for them immediately. Um, but at a bigger level for our profession, you know, I want I want us to do a big study where we interview regular people about all, you know, like t- find out what their sensory patterns are and ask them, how do you manage this? You know, you told me in this assessment that you have, um, that you seek touch and you are sensitive to sound, like, tell me what you're doing in your everyday life that you told me that seeking touch. Well, they're going to tell you things like, you know, I, um, I feel all the, all the clothing when I'm at the, at the store. And I, uh, I like to make a uh, bread cause I get to knead the dough. And, um, like we need to look at all the ways that people have intuitively figured out how to use their sensory patterns. Um, and you know, we need to do that even with the people we're serving. What are you already doing? You know, now that we know that you have that, um, seeking quality, what, you know, when do you drive your family crazy with it? And when do you get what you need for yourself? You know, like, I think the strategies that people think of in their everyday life, we could use for the people that aren't figuring it out without our help, you know, um, and there, there's a, a huge resource of people out there that have many stories to tell. You know, when I was writing Living Sensationally, people would tell me these stories and I'd be just like, oh my gosh, you know, this man that um, he bought a, um, it was called a silent garage door opener and he put it in. And it was still too noisy. So he put more rubber gaskets on it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm talking to him and, and I said, you know, I didn't know you could buy a silent garage door opener. Um, you know, that's fascinating. But I need you to know that other people like the sound of the garage door because it tells them their daughter's home or it tells them they've got the house closed up for the night. And he was just like, What? <laughs> But like, think of all that knowledge out there, all the people that have figured out strategies for themselves and like, including the populations that you're serving, like, um, what strategies have people thought of before that we could offer or we could suggest to the the people we're serving currently? I think we don't tap into that. Um, I've done a few projects where I've, um, evaluated everyone in the family, the parents and the children, and then we talk about how to manage the constellation of sensory patterns that are in their family. I think that things, teams, um, in it, you know, not just families, but teams, how they can distribute the work that's in service to the different patterns that people have. Um, and my experience is that once people know their own sensory patterns, um, they're, they're a wealth of information about what they're doing because we've increased their mindfulness. 
I do that a lot. Joanna, you said earlier that you work with people with developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities. You know, one of the first things I do when I serve um, like a, an agency or something that's serving that population is I have all the workers take the sensory profile and we talk about all the things they do, you know, to to manage themselves, to drive each other crazy, you know, and then it becomes part of the ethos that they discuss. So then when they're seeing a client, they notice sensory, they, they, they know that sensory ways of explaining the behavior is another choice. It sort of expands their choices about how they can think about a problem. It doesn't mean that sensory processing is always the underlying feature, but it's a contributing factor that's easy to manage. You know, it's, Parents are like, you mean I, I can just turn the lights down? You know, they're just like, oh my, you know, they think that a miracle has happened because of this one thing that we, you know, we say, well, what could you do? Like, it sounds like, you know, he's very sensitive, you know, in your house. I mean, what, what are some of the things you can do? And they say things, you know, they'll say like, oh, I'll close the blinds or whatever they, you know, whatever they think of. And then they think that they're like, in charge of everything that like, Oh, I have five more ideas and I tried that, but it didn't work. So I'm going to do this other thing. So we create all this resourcefulness for them. So I would like, I would like us to embed this information into the routines of everyone. You know, the, the men and women that you're serving can then gain insight for themselves that they share with grandma and grandpa. They share with their spouse. They share, you know, with um, other people they work with. Uh, you know, and, and it spreads and spreads, you know, I talked to, I, Leavenworth, Kansas is close by and that's where all the, the, um, army people get trained if they're in leadership. And so I did a whole year of teaching all the spouses about sensory processing. They all, you know, they all have jobs themselves, but you wouldn't believe the questions that came up, you know, like in their offices and, you know, it's just like it expands and expands because it's easy to grab onto. And I think that's why um, lots of people want to use it because it does explain behavior in a way that we didn't have before. So those are the things I would like people to start doing. Those are such incredible ideas. Yeah, it, it gets you so excited about our future as a profession. Yeah. So much growth for, for us a, as a community. I wonder what you think about current trends in sensory processing within our profession, in clinical practice especially? You know, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm sure you can tell from my talking that I'm all about the people's lives. And so I'm not so interested in person factor solutions. <clears throat> I feel like um, it sends a message that I don't think we want to send. And I don't think that anybody's trying to send it in a malicious way, but I had a little girl I served many, many years ago. She had uh, cerebral palsy and she was really bright. And um, it was during the seventies, during the trend when uh, we were, as always, we're playing with language. You know, now we have different ideas about how to refer to someone, but um, the, the trend right then was <clears throat> people who are experiencing X, people who are experiencing, you know, brain, brain damage, people are experiencing whatever. So people were saying that to her, you know, people who are experiencing cerebral palsy. She'd read it um, somewhere online or wherever she found stuff. And uh, she, she told her mom, you know, I think I'm done experiencing this. <laughs> I experienced it. 
done with cerebral palsy. Can I have a new one? <laughs> but I think that that speaks to this whole idea of um, when we focus on person factors, we lose track of the person's life. And um, we can't just give lip service to the person's life. That really has to stay at the center of everything we do. It just has to stay right in the center all the time. And I think OTs are smart enough to do that. It's just easy to fall back on more procedural or um, specific methods and strategies. It makes us feel fancy as OTs. You know, it's it's not fancy to go grocery shopping with someone, although to me it's sublime, you know, seeing helping somebody manage that situation, which is complicated. So I think that um, I think that our trends need to focus more on the hard work of seeing the therapeutic opportunities in the person's life instead of using our special strategies to try to affect change. I think that that definitely resonates with my clinical experience. I've used often with, with families, even a story I got from you. Oh, good. Yeah. From one of your, your conference presentations, you spoke about a child on the periphery of the playground chaos who's taking it all in and, and seeing the beauty of that child's experience and kind of fast forwarding to that child as an adolescent and what opportunity for kind of self-regulation, impulse control and consideration of risk that that child could bring to the, the peer group. I've, I've shared that many times with, with, um, with families, especially when the child has a diagnosis of ASD and there's the, the proposal, you know, we should work on social skills for the oh. child to perform social in the way that everyone else is. Exactly. That's not their way. Right. So much of, you know, what's been so empowering to me is to say, you know, Winnie Dunn created the sensory profile, which is what I'm reporting on. And, you know, she gave me this example. And what I'm seeing is your child do the exact same thing, you know, find his or her right. own way of, of participating in the world. And let's look at the ways that it's beautiful and intuitive and creative and solutions focused for this person. And, and that changes everything when you do that. But I also have um, in my teaching, many of my students will ask me really consistently, but why not remediate? Why not change the social behaviors so that the child participates just like everyone else. Why wouldn't we do that? I wonder what you would say to them. Well, um, I might, if I knew the students, I would find something that's, in, you know, essentially them and, and say, do you want me to change that about you? You know, do you want me to change that you need a quiet place to study? Or do you want me to find a quiet place for you? You know, like, and we all have that choice, you guys. I mean, we all have that choice. You know, we might want to do something really badly because our friends do it and we want to do it with them and we're willing to do the work to do it. I, it took me eight months to learn how to do Ardha Chandrasana, which is a yoga pose. Um, it's called Flying Half Moon Pose. I was in a class with people that were dancers and they just went boop right into it. You know, and, and I'm like, but I want, I mean, you know, I made a cognitive decision that I wanted to learn how to do it. And so, like every single day for eight months, like literally every single day, I put my butt cheek on the wall and I got in the position so that I could get the proprioception and the body image of it because it was something important to me to do. You know, it felt good when I did it. 
Um, so we have to always say people have a choice about what they want to spend their energy doing. You know, I'm never going to jump out of a plane um, because I, you know, I can have a full experience of living without that part, you know, but that set aside, we, we got to be respectful of other people. Why do we want everybody to be the same? Like it would be horrible. It would be really horrible. And um, the amount of energy we spend trying to make somebody be like everybody else is at the loss of what we could be doing to help them be more creative, to help them be more um, resourceful, to, to help them find words for how to explain where they are with other people. You know, like I need to leave the room now, you know, teaching a kid, I gotta, I gotta go collect myself. I need some quiet for a moment. Teaching just that little skill is a social skill that informs everyone, you know, without it being like this big thing where they have to be like everybody else. We don't want everybody to be the loud party person either. We don't want everybody to be any certain way. So I think that sometimes we impose some of those things on people that have uh, frank conditions like autism that we would not impose on ourselves. If I could give you an example, it's, um, <laughs> it's a silly one, but it's, it's a good one to me. If we think about, uh, I went to a workshop and the woman um, that was a friend of mine. He was, he was starting a card company. So we were going to all make the cards. It was like a little card kit that you can make like invitations, you know, uh, back when that wasn't such a trend. And um, since I'm an OT, I, I kind of could figure out by looking at the card, what to do, you know, all the stuff was on the table. And um, one of the cards had a stamp that you put, you put a stamp on it and um, to make a design and so I just picked up the stamp and I stamped one of the cards, you know, to make my card. And the person running the table, she said, oh, are you a stamper? You know, and I was like, I, you know, I, it's like, am I, a, you know, do I identify as a stamper? You know, well, then the woman next to her was like a stamper. And they went on about how they bought their supplies and when they did their stamping and how she did it in the morning so she could bring it up at nine color with the kids at you know, on and on. And so it was clear I wasn't a stamper, right? But we call that a hobby for those two women, even though they were being pretty obsessive about this thing called stamping. And I, I, it, I know some people that listen to this will be stampers and that's okay. But like, why do we then label it as an obsession or uh, a narrow interest or, a, you know, all those bad words that we would say about a person with autism that is equally passionate about trains or space or physics or math, you know, if we get to call it a hobby, they get to call it a hobby, right? And so um, this idea of trying to make everybody be like everyone else betrays the essential nature of who that person is. And, and I would never, ever recommend for somebody to do that. Now, if the guy, the guy with autism said he wanted to do like learn to dance or something, then I'm all in and we would figure out a way to dance with the characteristics that he has. So I, I just, I, I try to get people to think about what it would feel like if we did it to them. And I think that we're in an era where we just don't need to do that anymore. You know, we know enough things. Um, I think self-advocates are telling us, you know, they're telling us, um, 
we have we have some great skills because of these characteristics. Quit trying to mess with them. I, that's what I would say about myself. You know, like don't mess with those things. I'm I'm happy to learn and ad- adapt on certain features, but you know, like don't make me be quiet because that isn't a good match for me. <laughs> I'm big and loud. You know, like I can be quiet, but it's a, it takes a lot of effort, and I'm I'll do it in places where. You know, I feel like it's respectful to the people around me, but um, it isn't who I am. I don't want you to stop caring about who I am. So, yeah, just tell them to stop doing that. (laughs) I think it takes so much courage to bring that message to the interprofessional table sometimes. Yeah. But has such value. Well, and if the, you know, if the parents are there, if it's a, if it's a young person and the parents are there, um, I want you to think about, I want everyone to think about like, how does it make that person, that parent feel like reports that we write, like, it's just like stabs in the heart of the family. And it's like, if somebody talked about your family member like that, you would be just as emotionally upset by it. Like, how can we say things, you know, Thomas uh, can pay attention when blah, 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 blah. You know, it, it might result in us understanding that he can't pay attention very often, but it's much more respectful to the family to say it that way. Um, I had a mom say to me one time, you know, uh, about a bad re- a report, a really negative report about her daughter. Um, he, she said, they don't even know her. She's the funniest person in my family. You know, like they didn't even take the time to know who she is. Um, maybe we should make them read a report and put their names in it and see how it makes them feel. <laughs> I don't know, but we got to stop. Courage is okay, right? Mm-hmm. Courage is okay. Oh, Winnie, this has been incredibly delightful. Uh, We are so appreciative of your time and having this conversation today uh, has given us so much to think about and reflect on. So we're so grateful for all that you can continue to do for our profession. Thank you. I'm so grateful that that you guys asked because, you know, we're we're not going to make progress together if we don't talk to each other about it. Amazing. Thank Thank you you again. Thanks for listening to another episode of OTs in Pelvic Health. If you haven't already, hop onto Facebook and join my group, OTs for Pelvic Health, where we have thousands of OTs at all stages of their pelvic health career journey. This is such an incredibly supportive community where I go live each and every week. If you love this episode, please take a screenshot of this episode on your phone and post it to IG, Facebook, wherever you post your stuff, and be sure to tag me and let me know why you like this episode. This will help me to create in the future what you want to hear more of. Thanks again for listening to the OTs and Pelvic Health Podcast.